For those of you new to CSP, that stands for Community Scholar Program. And uh, we've been around, this is our 16th year of bringing some of the most interesting speakers in the world to Orange County. We have a broad range of subjects that we've covered over 16 years. And if you've missed many of our past programs, you should know that we have an iTunes podcast. So if you go to iTunes and type in OCCSP, we have over 200 recordings up there. And I get notes from around the world of people who have been enjoying our programs. And if you are listening to our program today on podcast, please consider supporting CSP by going to www.occsp.org and making a contribution so we can continue to bring you awesome programs. I'll do a quick introduction and then we'll get started. Dr. Alyssa uh, Goldstein-Seppenwall received her PhD in history and Jewish studies from a little known university in uh, Palo Alto, California. <laughs> And held, uh, I am told it's doing better these days, like it's making a reputation for itself at Stanford University. She and held the, the Lucius and Litauer Postdoctoral Fellowship at the Center for Advanced Judaic Studies, University of Pennsylvania. We just had uh, David Rudiman here from Pennsylvania, he's our one month scholar. She is professor of history at Cal, uh, California State University, San Marcos, where she is a past winner of the university's Break Bill Distinguished Professor Award for Outstanding Professor of the Year. Dr. Seppenwall specializes in French history, Haitian history, and French Jewish history. Her first book, The Abbe Grégoire, should I do it with the French? Abbe Grégoire, and the French Revolution, The Making of Modern Universalism, was a biography of a French revolutionary and priest who argued for emancipating Europe, Europe's Jews. Her current research focuses on how history is represented in film, and therefore our program today involves film and history. I am told it's a mixture of existing films and maybe a new film that just came out. All new films. All new films that uh, you may want to watch after today's program. And then, uh, as we did, who, who attended the last program with uh, Dr. Sebmo? Remember I shared with you all um, a bibliography? So I'll try to share it with you as well um, and how to see these films that are, will be discussed. With that, please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Alyssa Sepinwall. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. It's a pleasure to be back here. And thank you so much to all of you who returned who wanted to hear me again, and to those of you who are coming for the first time. Um, before I start, I think I should just thank you for coming to support your local JCC. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, I don't know what's been happening in Orange County, but we certainly have had three bomb threats already, and the JCC just sent out a message yesterday saying people ask how can they support us, and the number one thing is to still come to the JCC and come and support programs right now. So thank you for being here uh, and affirming that it's important to come. Uh, let me explain how I came to be talking about the subject which I'm going to be doing today, which is new French films on the Holocaust. Um, as a French Jewish historian who's involved with the San Diego Jewish Film Festival, each year I'm invited to review and then to introduce new French Jewish films. And over the years I've noticed trends in French Jewish cinema. So I told your group last fall about one trend that I've noticed, which is films made by French Jewish filmmakers about Muslim Jewish relations. This is a different tendency in recent French Jewish films, new ways of treating the Holocaust. So I'm going to talk to you today about a few of these films and how they fit into new directions in Holocaust movies more generally. I want to say from the outset, I don't consider myself an expert in Holocaust cinema more generally. 
I have a colleague in San Diego. You may have heard him speak before. His name is Professor Lawrence Barron. He recently retired from San Diego State University. We had him as uh, our adult retreat speaker. Great. And so he has written several books about Holocaust cinema. Um, and he's a good friend of mine, and I'll be talking about some of his work. Um, my mother is also a Holocaust educator. She recently retired as a professor of social studies education at a Catholic college in New Jersey, and she ran a Holocaust center. So um, with, these, with this friend and my mother, and as a French historian who works on history and film, I've started to notice these um, trends in new films. Now, my title, as you can see, this is a very appropriate talk to be doing here at the JCC. Because what other place embodies all of these things? Students, sports, the second generation, and the Holocaust. There are very few places. But uh, you might not think about sports and the Holocaust going together. But I'm going to be talking about these new ways that directors are approaching Holocaust films. Before I get started, I want to talk about some of the challenges that exist in making a Holocaust film in the 21st century. When I used to be just a consumer of movies, I didn't think about how things are staged and how to depict them. Um, but making a film about the Holocaust can seem very daunting to a 21st century filmmaker. In the decades since the camps were liberated, a large number of Holocaust films, as you know, have already been made. After films like Schindler's List, Life is Beautiful, it might seem that there's little left for a filmmaker to say about the Shoah. This is especially true in France, where classic Holocaust films like Claude Lanzmann's Shoah and Louis Mel's Au Revoir les Enfants have already reached wide audiences. In addition to the large number of existing films, the Holocaust presents another challenge for would-be feature filmmakers. How can such a horrible event be recreated using actors? Elie Wiesel powerfully identified this problem in a 1989 New York Times column. And let me go to the next slide, please. So describing the recent spate of ho fictionalized accounts of the Holocaust at that time in the late 80s, Wiesel declared, let us repeat, Auschwitz is something else, always something else. It is a universe outside the universe, a creation that exists parallel to creation. He denounced those that he called merchants of images and asked why this determination to show everything in pictures. How, after all, can one illustrate famine terror, the solitude of old people deprived of strength and orphans robbed of their future? How can one stage a convoy of uprooted deportees being sent into the unknown or the liquidation of thousands and thousands of men, women, and children? How can one produce the machine gunned, the gassed, the mutilated corpses, when the viewer knows that they are all actors and that after the filming they will return to the hotel for a well-deserved bath and a meal. I have to say this is the first time I'm doing this talk in public, so it's the first time I've read that 
passage out loud, and it makes me even sadder than when I've read it. Uh, Wiesel argued that while texts were the best way to learn about the Holocaust, documentaries were also acceptable, since they showcased survivors' voices and did not try to recreate these horrible, unimaginable things. But better still, Wiesel argued, was direct contact with survivors. So 30 years since he wrote this column, it's 2017, I still find it extremely powerful. But as you know, meeting with survivors has become more challenging in 2017 than it was back in 1989. Those survivors who were teenagers during the Holocaust have reached their late 80s or early 90s, if they're still with us. Certainly in San Diego, each year we lose more beloved members of our New Life Club. Uh, so for one thing, it's harder for survivors to be the primary transmitters of memory. This is one thing that has started to make some survivors, children of survivors and scholars, less apprehensive about using film to teach new audiences about the Holocaust. Uh, historians have acknowledged that film can play an important role in teaching new generations about the Shoah. Indeed, Wiesel himself began to accept Holocaust films as more inevitable later in his life. He wrote the introduction to an important book on Holocaust films, and he praised several Holocaust documentaries. So these trends, the smaller number of survivors and the growing acceptance of Holocaust films among scholars have led to shifts in Holocaust testimony and in the films that are made. So in the world of Holocaust testimony, as many of you may know, there has been an emphasis on second generation survivors learning to narrate their parents' experiences so that they'll be able to tell them uh, when their parents are not here. And in cinema, filmmakers have looked for ways to make the Holocaust relevant to students and future audiences who may never have what we've taken for granted, which is the ability to meet survivors directly and to hear from them directly. So many of these filmmakers have responded to Wiesel's challenge by telling stories about the Holocaust that don't involve having to recreate machine gunnings or gassings. In his book, Projecting the Holocaust into the Present, my friend Lawrence Barron from SCSU analyzed Holocaust films of the 1990s and 2000s. He found a focus on second generation themes and also an openness toward less literal ways of discussing this tragedy, that is, not depicting the camps themselves. He wrote, where viewers who lived during the Holocaust or who were born in the immediate post-war period prefer historically realistic movies about the persecution and genocide of Jews during World War II, he found people born after 1960 seem to prefer films that are creative rather than literal in their portrayals of the Holocaust. He found that they also preferred films that focused on relevancy, why the Holocaust is relevant today. Now, this is what audiences are interested in. Interestingly, in film industries where filmmakers need money to be able to put things on screen, these tastes drive what is considered bankable, what is considered to be something that will be able to return the money invested in the film and therefore influences what kinds of films that are made. I'll tell you at the San Diego Jewish Film Festival, I often hear that um, 
film goers say they have seen so many Holocaust movies already that many choose different films to see instead. Um, for instance, my son's Hebrew school secretary, who's a grandma from South Africa, asked me for a recommendation. And when I told her things, she said, no Holocaust films. So there's definitely a sense, even among people who care about it, that they've seen a lot already. Um, or if people are still willing to see more, they might see one or two Holocaust films a year, but they're not willing to see a festival full of 40 of them. So one French filmmaker named Elie Choraki said he found a Holocaust fatigue among film funders. He was told that audiences won't buy tickets to, buy, to see new films on the Holocaust because people feel they've already seen so many and the film company can't lose money so they won't fund it. So he eventually turned to a French version of Kickstarter called Movies Angels um, to make his film on the Holocaust called The Origin of Violence, which is the, one of the ones I'll discuss today. And when filmmakers can get financing, it's often much smaller than what would be needed to do an epic film recreating the camps. Steven Spielberg had a very big budget to be able to make the kind of epic that he did with these large scenes set in camps. So all of this has encouraged filmmakers to find fresh ways to make films about the Holocaust. Many have avoided this problem identified by Wiesel and that of low budgets by not setting their stories in camps or at least not for a whole film, except for some flashbacks. So I want to tell you about a few of these new films from France and some trends that I see in them. So the first, I'll have the next slide, is called Victor Young Perez. This is a film from 2013. It is the story of a Tunisian, the true story of a Tunisian Jewish boxing champion deported to Auschwitz in 1943. The film fits what I see as two trends in recent Holocaust film. The first is that it is a biopic. It is a film giving the biography the life of one person. As Barron has noted, this is currently the most common genre of Holocaust film. So where earlier films on the Holocaust sought to teach audiences about the enormity of the Holocaust and the enormity of the carnage, recent films have narrowed their focus and try to make the tragedy more concrete by focusing on an individual caught up in the Shoah. So the first trend is it's a biopic. The second trend is it's a Holocaust sports film. This is where sports comes in. Now the idea might seem strange or even disrespectful. And when I first wrote a draft um, of the article on which this talk is based, I only had one sentence in and some of my readers said, what is that? So I had to write a lot more to explain. Victor Young Paris joins several other sports-themed Holocaust films, each intended to draw audiences that might not otherwise see a Holocaust film, or for some of us who might not go see yet another Holocaust film just because we feel that we can't handle watching it again. So even if it might seem strange to do a sports Holocaust hybrid, remember that with six million Jews killed by the Nazis and millions of others who survived, some of them were athletes. Some of them went swimming in the equivalent of their JCC and were on teams. Um, so here are some of the Holocaust sports films I have identified so far. So we'll go to the next slide. One of the first ones was a 1961 Hungarian film, The Last Goal, Two Half Times in Hell, about a soccer match organized between prisoners of war and the Nazi soldiers guarding them. So this is from 1961. Next slide, please. 
1962 from Slovakia, the film The Boxer and Death, about a deported boxer, much like Victor Young Perez. Next slide, please. 1989, some of you may have seen the American film Triumph of the Spirit about a Greek Jewish boxer deported to Auschwitz. Next slide, please. Watermarks, 2004, an Israeli documentary about Jewish women swimming champions in Vienna in the 1930s. Okay, and next slide, please. And then there have been two films about Gretel Bergman, the German-Jewish high-jumping star who was banned from the 1936 Olympics and later changed her name to Margaret Lambert. And so you have a bio pic about her that's fiction and then a documentary. Berlin 36 from Germany from 2009, and then the documentary Hitler's Pawn, the Margaret Lambert story. Next slide, please. Uh, the Macedonian film, The Third Half, which we showed at our Jewish Film Festival a few years ago from 2014 about the deportation of Jewish soccer players from Macedonia. Next slide. The German film, A Life for Football, about the founder of Bayern Munich, very important German soccer club even today, who happened to have been Jewish. And then I don't have a slide for this, or well, we can stay here, though. Um, and let's not forget, I don't have a slide for it, but Race, the 2016 film about Jesse Owens, which also, if you saw it, included some information about Jews in the 1936 Nazi Olympics. In addition to these films, Yad Vashem and the US Holocaust Memorial Museum have been using sports as an entry point for engaging today's students. Uh, I may have my slides mixed up. Let's see the next one. Perfect. Uh, Cheryl Ochayon of Yad Vashem has explained, using sports in teaching about the Holocaust can be extremely useful. It makes the point that the Holocaust happened in the modern world, a world where there were sports teams, stars, and cheering crowds. Sports can be used as a means to bridge the gulf between the Holocaust as a massive historical event and the Holocaust as a human story. You may know that the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum had as one of its first exhibits, and it's still online, an exhibit about the Nazi Olympics. So Victor Young Perez adds to this effort to use sports to tell a story about a Holocaust tragedy and to show contemporary audiences all the different things that Jews did before the war, that they did the same thing that non-Jews did, that they were regular people, not just victims, not weak people. So the film stars Brahim Aslum, a real Olympic boxing gold medalist, and it tells the true story, thank you, of a young Jewish boxer who goes from humble origins in Tunisia, which was part of the French empire, the French colonial empire at that time, he goes from humble origins in Tunisia to winning the World Flyweight Championship in 1931 before later being deported to Auschwitz. The film spends a lot of time in the pre-war period. That's one way that the filmmaker deals with these challenges I mentioned. So it shows Perez hobnobbing with his glamorous Italian girlfriend in fancy Parisian nightclubs. And again, that keeps the director from having to recreate concentration camp seasons for a whole film. But part of the film is set in Buna Monowitz, 
the camp to which Perez was deported, part of Auschwitz. The commandant there was offended that a Jew should have been named world champion in any sport. He tells Perez that he wants to prove that a Jew could only have won the world title by buying off the referees. So to prove Aryan superiority, the commandant decides to stage a match in the camp with Perez fighting against one of the Nazi officers. Of course, the fact that Perez is emaciated, hungry, and brutalized will not be considered in the outcome. In addition to being a biopic and a Holocaust sports movie, Victor Young Perez fits another tendency in recent French Holocaust films, and this is showing the Holocaust's effect outside Europe in French colonial North Africa. When we discuss the Holocaust, we often assume that the victims were European Jews, that they were Ashkenazim. But Victor Young Perez, along with a few other recent French films, have focused on the Sephardic Jewish victims deported from France's empire, from France's North African colonies. So let me give you a brief excerpt from the movie to give you a taste. Okay, and I'm not gonna show the whole clip, just about 40 seconds, so we'll just hit play here. Il faut que tu tombes tout de suite, Victor. Il faut absolument que tu perdes vite. Ils organisent ce combat pour nous montrer à quel point ils sont supérieurs. Si tu tombes pas tout de suite, t'es mort, Victor. Meine Damen und Herren, bei diesem Kampf werden die Regeln der ehebaren Sportart respektiert. Le miracle, c'est de vivre. Okay, so I'll stop it there. You can see the rest of the trailer online. It's about six minutes. Uh, I have to say that while Victor Young Perez is powerful in many ways, I personally find its least successful scene to be when Perez embarks on the death march in 1945. Films like Sarah's Key, next slide please, and La Raf, from both of which are from the 2010, they show Jews at the time of the 1942 Veldiv Roundup in Paris, when Jews were taken from their home and put in this sports stadium a little bit like Hurricane Katrina, only even worse, um, before being deported to camps. So we have these films that have been made recently in France, but the difference is that these films show people who've just been taken from their homes. So they show well-nourished actors playing people who have been pretty well-nourished. So the well-nourished actors who are pretending to be arrested in the film, they don't look that different from the characters they're playing since Jews until that moment had been living relatively safe lives as civilians. However, depicting the death march at the end of the Shoah is so challenging that it is almost never shown in Holocaust films since it requires depicting people who have spent months, if not years, starving. I never thought about this problem before until I saw this movie and I thought that the death march scene looked ridiculous. Um, so in Victor Young Paris, the same actors who were very convincing in their boxing scenes from before the war, showing that they were world champions. Next slide, please. They look too strong and healthy to be believable stand-ins. 
for those who were still alive in the camps after the winter of 1944. I saw this film with my mother, uh, who, as I told you, uh, has been a Holocaust educator, and we had a lively discussion about this scene. Is it worth it trying to depict the death march when it's going to look ridiculous? Should you never have it in a movie, or should you put it in the film and just recognize that the people who are marching are not going to look anything like what people look like in the death march? I mean, you can see how strong um, this character still looks. This is the character who plays Paris's brother. So I think that the director's desire to show how Paris suffered is well-intentioned, but here I think that Wiesel's critique is still valid, because it's very strange to see, again, these strong people pretending that they're on the death march. But I still think that Victor Young Paris is a really interesting movie, despite of the violence of the boxing scenes being so much that it really bothered my mother, who can watch Holocaust film after Holocaust film, but did not like seeing the gore. Uh, in the boxing scenes that were set in the camps. So now I want to turn to the second movie, Once in a Lifetime. Have some of you seen Once in a Lifetime now? It showed last year at the Orange County Jewish Film Festival, and I mentioned it in my talk in the fall. Uh, unlike Victor Young Perez, Once in a Lifetime is set in the present. The film is a great example of how French filmmakers are using different strategies to make the Holocaust relevant to diverse French audiences, including today's students. So Once in a Lifetime is set in a diverse high school on the outskirts of Paris. It parallels American films like Freedom Writers in celebrating a white hero teacher who sees the good in children of color whom others dismiss as unteachable. The teacher in Once in a Lifetime takes her students seriously, inspires them, and changes their lives. And as with Freedom Writers, which was set in Long Beach, the film is based on a true story. But what makes Once in a Lifetime unique is not only that this is a French version of those stories, but that it was co-written by one of the former students in the class. Ahmed Drame based it on his own experiences, and he stars as Malik, a fictionalized version of himself. He got so much praise in the role that he was nominated for a rising star actor at the 2015 Caesars. That's the equivalent of if the Oscars were crossed with the Grammys and there was a best new actor category. So let me show the clip. And again, I showed this in a different context in the fall. La seconde 1, c'est une catastrophe. Il y a trois rapports disciplinaires à l'issue en urgence. Je m'en fous de tes règles. Je m'appelle Madame Degel. J'ai réfléchi à un projet qu'on pourrait faire tous ensemble. Un concours. C'est le concours national de la résistance et de la déportation. Ça a l'air de ton truc d'antélo, ça. Vous savez très bien qu'on va se planter. Pourquoi vous voulez qu'on se tape la ronde vous faites ça C'est bizarre parce que moi, j'ai beaucoup plus confiance en vous que vous, vous n'avez confiance en vous-même. Madame, pourquoi on parle toujours des juifs Les enfants et les adolescents. Pas de religion, pas de nationalité. Il n'y a pas plus funky, là, comme concours Je pense, moi, que vous avez énormément de choses à dire là-dessus. Vous trouvez ça bien raisonnable de faire passer ce concours à votre seconde Moi, je vois ça comme du temps perdu, puis du temps que vous pourriez consacrer à d'autres élèves qui le méritent plus. C'est mieux ce qu'on a fait, tu peux pas aller tout travailler. Tu peux pas aller tout travailler. 
Ça ne change pas. Il faut pas parler comme des élèves. Il faut en parler comme des enfants. Chacun avec sa différence et avec sincérité. Et ça, je sais que vous êtes capable de le faire. À travers les livres, les films, les documents, tout ça, c'est un peu comme si on faisait des rencontres. Lifetime deals with diverse issues besides the Holocaust that would engage French audiences. These include conflicts over religion in French public schools. Is it okay for a young woman to dress modestly to school, let alone wearing a veil? Uh, is it okay for her to dress modestly to school, or is she showing that she's religious by not wearing a miniskirt, and is that an affront to French secularism? Believe it or not, that is a controversy. Uh, in France. The film also looks at students' personal challenges as they form their own religious identities. Is trying to be French, as some French people are de defining that, betraying their mostly Muslim heritages? The film also fits into this Muslim-Jewish friendship genre that I spoke about here in the fall as Malik befriends his Jewish neighbor and dates one of his Jewish classmates. Another thing that I find interesting in the film is the way that it humanizes young French Muslims who are often dismissed as anti-French and destined for failure. So while exploring issues of diversity in contemporary France, the film centers on studying the Shoah. Madame Guéguen, the teacher you saw, encourages her students to enter a national contest on the Holocaust focused on children and adolescents. And this is true. This really happened to the director when he was in high school. She is convinced that by helping her students learn about racism and prejudice beyond their neighborhood, she can awaken their faith in themselves and their kindness toward others. The children go from thinking, what do the Jews have to do with us, to crying over the Holocaust. Now, one of the things that I like most about Once in a Lifetime is that it avoids the problems identified by Wiesel in creative ways. For one thing, even though it's fictionalized, it includes a real clip of survivor testimony. Next slide, please. Survivor Léon Ziegel shared his testimony with Malik, the director's class, excuse me, with Malik, the character in the film, just as in real life he spoke to the director Ahmed's class. When Once in a Lifetime was released in 2014, Siegel was still alive. However, he died several months afterwards. So the film thus preserves a survivor voice that might otherwise be lost. Second, the filmmakers do not recreate camp scenes using actors. Instead, they insert real historic images as the students find them in their research. So in this way, next slide please the filmmakers are able to depict the stark realities of the Holocaust without having to reenact them. I found this very powerful because we're used to seeing pictures, at least I am, of Muslim grown-ups who were skin and bones at the moment of liberation. And I had never seen this photo before of children, um, some children who were able to survive and looked that way. And the filmmaker, again, didn't have to stage anything or try to make children look that way, which would be perverse. But just to insert these real photographs into the film was his way of um, showing what had happened. Ultimately, I think Once in a Lifetime is a powerful testament to seeing each person 
as an individual with potential instead of consigning them to stereotypes. After the Charlie Hebdo and Iper Kasher attacks in 2015, the film was given a special prize by the CRIF, which is the equivalent of the Umbrella Federations or UJF, um, and they said it showed a message of hope to think about the possibility that there were people in French society who would uh, oppose anti-Semitism and defend Jews. The last film I want to discuss is called The Origin of Violence, and that is the film directed by Shoraki, the filmmaker I told you about earlier, who crowdfunded a substantial part of his film because he had found Holocaust fatigue among the people who had funded his earlier movies. So it's a brand new film from 2016, and I don't think it has screened yet in Orange County. It's not available yet on DVD, but we showed it in San Diego last month at our festival. The film is set in the present, and its protagonist is a teacher named Nathan Fabre. Nathan is working on a history dissertation based, uh, focused on German resistance to the Nazis. We see him traveling to Germany to visit Buchenwald and to meet with a young woman named Gabi, whose grandparents were Nazis. She's going to give him documents. While at the Buchenwald Museum, Nathan makes a discovery that launches him on a search for answers about his own family. He sees a prisoner in a museum photo who looks eerily like Nathan's own father. Nathan has been raised as a Catholic, and he can't imagine that he would have any personal connection to the Holocaust other than the scholarly connection he has. Clip, please.
Now this film, okay, I think that's finished. This film I'm telling you about, but unfortunately you can't see it yet because it's not on DVD and even I, sometimes for the festival they give me a screener and I can watch it over and over again. And for this film, I had a password to be able to watch it once. So for me, just watching the trailer again is really amazing. I want to be able to see the film um, more times. So several things about the origin of violence fit into larger trends. So first of all, it, it joins two other recent French language films, Sarah's Key and One Day You'll Understand, which is called Plutar in French, in exploring what it meant for secrets to be kept in families concerning the Holocaust and what it is like for descendants to suddenly learn that they're Jewish or that they have Jewish ancestry after being raised Catholic. And I'm sure you know other films not from France that have been doing this recently, like Ida from Poland. As the trailer hints, Nathan does turn out to be a descendant of uh, someone who perished in the Holocaust. So the film parallels this larger shift in cinema from presenting the facts of the Holocaust to exploring its legacy among the next generation. It also fits into the category of post memory Holocaust cinema, which examine whether traumatic memories of the Holocaust can be passed to those who weren't there in person. So the film raises a series of provocative questions about the effect of the Holocaust on the second and third generations. These include what passes to the next generation from a trauma like the Holocaust. Which is better, as you saw there in the line, which is better, remembering or forgetting? Shiraki raises interesting parallels between the descendants of Jewish victims of the Holocaust and those of the Nazis, embodied by Gabby. The film also has an interesting approach both to the problems that Wiesel raised and the challenges of funding a Holocaust film in the 2010s. It's not exclusively a Holocaust film. Much of the film is set in the present, with handsome actors and plenty of romance and action so that audiences can feel that they're seeing a contemporary thriller that happens to be about the Holocaust but is not entirely set at the time. So it has many parallels. Have any of you seen Remember with Christopher Plummer and Martin Landau? Oh. Now, I, if I tell you to see the film and you don't like it, you might get mad at me. So I'll say instead that it's a very interesting and fast-paced film that has inspired some controversy, but overall has been very popular. We showed it at our festival last year, and it won the Audience Award. Yeah. The people who went to see it all gave it very, very high ratings. Um, so that film also has a lot of twists and turns set in the present in a search for answers about the past. Now, the origin of violence does include some flashbacks to the 1940s, both before the war and in the camps, as you saw in the uh, trailer, as we meet Nathan's ancestor, David Natan Wagner. But the scenes are much smaller than the epic scenes of concentration camps that you might see in films like Schindler's List. Here, the camp scenes focus mostly on David Wagner and the psychological pain and fear that he experienced in the camp. So to me, even though Shiraki, the director, didn't recreate the entire camp environment, I think he helped audiences experience the fear that individual camp 
inmates experienced on a daily basis in an extremely powerful way. So I hope this has given you a sense of some new directions in French Holocaust cinema, some of which are parallel to things going on in Holocaust cinema from other countries. In an effort to make the Holocaust relevant and to ensure that new generations did not forget about it, and to draw in audiences who feel they may already have seen films about the Holocaust, directors are finding new ways to engage viewers, and as I've discussed, sports, students, and second generation themes are some of them. Thank you. So we have time for a few questions. So thank you so much for all the issues you raised. So I'll say personally, I think that there are so many stories that still should be told about the Holocaust. I tell my students, we had six million people who were killed, and then lots of other people who survived but had harrowing experiences. And each of them was a person, an individual, who had their own life story. So the Holocaust is not one story about the murder of all of these people, but it's how many stories is it? One plus one plus one plus one. And so each of these people has their own story and there may be some commonalities, but it's amazing how many uh, unique things there are in each time. And I have to tell you that I get Holocaust fatigue sometimes. The film festival will say to me, can you introduce this new movie? And I say, oh, it's a Holocaust film. You know, I'm, with, I'm working, then I'm with my son, and I'm exhausted at night. Wouldn't I just like to watch reality TV, right? The Real Housewives of Orange County or something. But okay, I'm going to watch this film for the festival. 
And invariably, if it's a good film that they've selected, I get so wrapped up and I say, I can't believe I never knew this before. And so one of those issues is the second issue you raised, children of Nazis. This is something that's more prevalent in recent German films on the Holocaust, actually. There's a film called, uh, I'll come up with it, Hitler's Children. And it's about these people who grew up, like you've, if you've seen Schindler's List, Amon Goetz, the guy on the horse, his daughter grew up knowing nothing about him until she went to see Schindler's List. And she realized that was her father. Her father had said he had tried, or her mother had told her that her father had tried to help people. So I think there are a lot of stories that are, still need to be told. But the challenge, of course, as I said, for filmmakers is can you get funding for your film? And I think it's a bigger problem for fiction films than documentaries. The issue I raised at the beginning, if I'm going to interview survivors or I'm going to look at documents, I'm not recreating anything. I'm presenting a historical story using documents through film. When I try to make a fiction film, meaning that it's a drama with actors, that's when things start to get more complicated and run into the problems that Wiesel raised. And that's what I think is so interesting about these three films is the way that they each go about that issue. Do you find that uh, French film and European films on the Holocaust are, um, are more daring than American filmmakers? Mm. Are more, more braver, I guess, in the way they tell their story? Are there any particular things you're thinking about? Just like you were saying in terms of American filmmakers tend to do the narrative mm -hmm. and the big story and not the really personalized story. Yeah, I, so I would say, and again, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on American films, but I know a lot of good American documentaries about uh, Holocaust survivors. Maybe these issues of memory and the legacy, those maybe aren't being made. Because uh, Remember that I mentioned with Martin Landau and Christopher Plummer is not an American film. It's Adam Aboyan. It's a Canadian film. Um, and then you have these European films. So maybe American filmmakers aren't making these kinds of films about memory as much, but it's an interesting research question. I would want to think about that more. Yeah, because I think, in, in my opinion, just because I've studied so Oh, please, then tell us. You've studied since I was about 13, so I, my take is, is that, you know, yes, they always look for the bankable mm -hmm. uh, thing. Money is very important for <coughs> filmmakers and studios, otherwise they won't do it. Uh, but I find that outside of American cinema, they're far more braver mm -hmm. and more daring and willing to tell those stories than American cinema, which is short of documentaries, which is that we have to make money. And if it's not backed mm -hmm. by Universal or backed by a major film, Jewish filmmaker or something like that, then they, they're not going to do it. It's just not, it doesn't make enough mm -hmm. money. Thanks. Um, so I agree with what you said and that there are so many more stories to tell. Um, my own family, my mom was a child survivor. And with that being said, and with what you just said, do you think there's still a market for this type of film moving forward? So I think crowdfunding is interesting when people are supporting films. And it's amazing to me that Eli Shoraki, who had made uh, films in the U.S. before he'd made a film with Andy McDowell and Adrian Brody and Joe Pesci back in the day. Uh, he decided, you know, he's an established filmmaker and he's won French awards, that this is how he was going to make his film and he had enough fans to do it. And um, I'll 
This is just a little brag. I was at the San Diego Jewish Film Festival brunch two weeks ago. I can't hold this up. I met Hal Linden. It was very exciting. And it was such a surprise that he was there. Now, why was he at our film festival brunch unannounced? Because he's actually making a fiction film about memory with a San Diego independent filmmaker where there's a kid who doesn't know anything about his family's past and it turns out his grandfather's a survivor and why were they at the brunch to ask us for money? So they're thinking this is an audience from the JCC that might be able to be philanthropic. So, but yeah, the question is, is whether uh, they'll be fatigued. Now we hosted at our festival a filmmaker from Hungary. It was very exciting. We don't get many Hungarian films in the US, Son of Saul, um, was a big one and started to get attention. And this filmmaker who came to San Diego is one of the leading directors in Hungarian cinema, about my age, but his films haven't been released abroad before with English subtitles. And he's made a very interesting film called 1945. Maybe it's called 1946. I think it's 45 about the end of the year, about a village in Hungary where they've taken over all the Jews' properties. And then all of a sudden, some Jews show up. And I asked him about this funding problem because of what had happened with Joachim. And there's still parts of Europe where the subject is very new. They haven't tackled this or come to terms with it. So he hasn't had this problem at all. So I think it, part is a national issue and part of it is something that we can help with. Take a few more quick questions. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the San Diego Film Festival, what time of year it is? And... Sure. So our film festival is every year in February. We hold films in Carlsbad. I start with North County, right? Carlsbad, San Marcos, and Claremont, and some of the JCC in La Jolla. And we have 40 to 80 films. It's really amazing. We do have some others that happen year-round. I know there's going to be a film in May and in August. So if you go to the San Diego, the Lawrence Family JCC website, you can get yourself on the mailing list, and then you can decide, do I want to drive down <laughs> for this or not? Unfortunately, as I said, we just had our festival in February, but we'll have a couple of programs during the year. Palm Springs has it too, right? Palm Springs, so I just was in Palm Springs two weeks ago. The Palm Springs International Film Festival, the giant one, yeah. always has some films about Jewish things. So some of the films I mentioned have been shown there. They have a smaller festival, if anyone wants to drive up there, coming up in March at Temple Isaiah in Palm Springs. They're showing a few films, not the ones that I mentioned, but they have a different new French Holocaust film that I haven't seen called Fanny's Journey. Oh, and I want to mention this because we have voting in our festival to give the filmmakers awards that they can use as they try to sell their films. So we had audience favorite um, in drama and in documentary. And audience favorite in drama, despite all the challenges he had making the film, Origin of Violence came out second of all the films in the festival, but number one went, went to Fanny's Journey, which is about ch child survivors. It's about these children trying to find a safe place um, and fleeing together as a, a group of children. So they have another film called In Search of Israeli Cuisine, which I've seen, which is amazing. You're just going to want to eat afterwards. I'm going to take the uh, speaker's prerogative to call on Sharon Reberg and she is my friend, and her hand was up. <laughs> and she's the only That's one that very, I know here. That's very kind. Thank you, Alyssa. Um, we do have a Jewish film festival here. Yes. Sponsored by universities. Yes, yes. And they bring in some wonderful films. So don't ignore it. Just yes, it's yes. Close. <laughs> yes, and so I think Once in a Lifetime was shown there last year. Yes, it was. And as a matter of fact, there is a, 
movie tomorrow night mm -hmm. uh, at the Jewish Film Festival at uh, West Park here mm -hmm. in Irvine mm -hmm. at 7 o'clock. Uh, and also on the 29th of March, uh, the Orange County Jewish Film Festival is uh, doing the exclusive showing of the movie they just received, uh, which is called uh, Women in the Balcony. Oh, I just saw it. It was wonderful. The only thing I have to warn you is depending on where it shows, when we saw it at our JCC, the subtitles weren't showing well. Uh, we get to see them at a real... Okay. Yes. Yes. That it's a wonderful movie. It has nothing to do with France or the Holocaust. No. It's about Israeli Orthodox women, Mizrahi Sephardic women, um, and uh, uh, a Hasidic Ashkenazi rabbi comes into their synagogue and tries to shake up the way they look at how women are able to participate in Judaism, and it's sweet and funny and important. Um, I'll look. Afterwards, I can look at the list of films shown here in Orange County, and I'll tell you if I have any recommendations about them otherwise. So let's, uh, let's wrap up. So thank you so much for this great program. And uh, so a few, a few closing remarks. Number one is Women in the Balcony, I believe, was reviewed in the LA Times on uh, Friday. I got a very good review. So uh, it looks pretty awesome. So I recommend going to see that. That's just a, a freebie promo. Um, Right, so that's number one. Number two is uh, we actually had Geza Rorick here uh, about a month and a half ago for a private uh, uh, discussion, and uh, uh, we recorded that. So if you missed the Geza Rorick program, it was very deep. It was very intense. Um, it's on our iTunes uh, account, OCCSP. And then the final thing, which is random, is my good friend Noah Taft is also making a, hol a Holocaust-related movie. It's called Nate and Al, and you should know that he has uh, the director, John Avelson, who, who directed a little small film that won the Academy Award called Rocky, and uh, Karate Kid, and The Power of One, and he's uh, Martin Landau is, is uh, starring in it. Um, and uh, anyway, so all these issues you brought up are all the issues that um, are being faced right now to make this movie happen, um, because um, it's hard to fund movies, and in America, um, you know, they will not fund a movie like this. But it's, a, it's actually a contemporary story. I'll send you the script. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a contemporary story. It's a grandfather-grandson road redemption movie. Mm -hmm. It's a grandfather is a survivor. The grandson knows nothing about it. And they end up on a road trip together in a very funny way. Uh, it's a kind of a dark comedy. Um, so anybody wants to read it, I'm happy to share the script with you. With that, I would like to thank you all for coming out and enjoy the rest of your day while there's no rain. Thank you.